0: So, how many of you have received a Christmas card already? All right, yeah. How many of you have got yours out? All right. all right. Not me. Well, have you ever wondered why there aren't any Advent cards? Why aren't there Advent cards? They're just Christmas cards, right? Here's why. This is, this is what Advent cards would all look like. So, John the Baptist telling you you're a, you're a brood of vipers. So, um, so uh, one of the things that um, I used to think—I've, you know—you go to seminary and you learn some things. Um, I learned that brood is not the collective noun for vipers. I always thought, you know, you had one viper or you had two. Vipers that made up a brood of vipers. It turns out that's wrong. Um, if you know English, then, um, you don't have to go to seminary to learn this. But, um, if you know English, you know that brood is actually the word for the children of. So John is saying you're the children of snakes. And so the brood of vipers always used to throw me off. I found out that the, the correct word for a, for a, a collection of vipers is a den of vipers or a nest of vipers. So you can file that away. Should you ever take up a prophetic ministry out in the wilderness, you can tell people, you get those two things clear. Uh, one of the things that happened when I was in seminary is they used this exact text every, every year in the preaching class. So, uh newbie preachers never never preached anything, at least not in seminary. Maybe they did back at their church or something, but now that they're in seminary, they're learning to be preachers. The first text was always either Luke 3 or Matthew 3, the same story, John the Baptist telling people they're a brood of vipers. And I think the idea was to kind of say how much uh, can you get out of this text, which is a troublesome text, but I think there was also an element of of um a hazing in it, you know, the teachers like to watch us, you know, kind of kind of uh, wither on the vine. So um it kind of certainly uh uh brought us down to size. But one of the things I thought about is is, you know, I, I don't remember all the different sermons in my group, but but I, I wondered, you know, how many total different themes there are in this passage. You know, it's whatever, 10 it, ten ten or twelve verses. Um how many different themes could you get out of it? You know, could you get 10, 20? 50, 100, you know, there's probably some finite number of total messages. And if you're one of the seminary professors, you've heard them all. And so as you're listening to them and, you know, kind of saying you need to do this or you need to do that, you're thinking, okay, well this is, this is theme 17, I've heard it a million times. Or you're thinking this is Serm 84 and, you know, good old theme forty-eighty-four. 84, we all love 84, right? Or whatever it is. And I've wondered how many there really are. And so, if I was in seminary today, I would tell you, you know, to, 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 I don't know the answer to how many themes there are, but here's the theme that I would preach now. I don't know what I preached in seminary, but I would offer this theme today as the theme to talk about in this message, which is the greater one, the one that is coming after John offers a better baptism than John did. So. Uh, we are in this series of uh, messages for Advent. Advent is the season of expectant waiting. We're waiting for something to happen, and we're, we're expecting it to come. And what we're expecting to come is, interestingly, uh, if you've just kind of walked into church today, um, uh, it is not... Christmas. Christmas is coming, and we are looking forward to that, but we're looking forward to Christmas only as a reminder of the way God is faithful, that God uh, keeps his promises, and the promise that we're really looking forward to, or that we're supposed to be looking forward to, is that Jesus would return and he would inaugurate the the new age, the age to come, the age of of peace and plenty and prosperity and everything that is good and nothing that is evil. So that's the the, the the general idea of Advent and last week or a couple of weeks ago we looked at uh, the idea that um, that. That second coming, when Jesus returns, that corresponds to what throughout the Hebrew scriptures was called the day of the Lord. And what Jesus said about the day of the Lord is you don't have to be afraid of it. Despite the things that, that you may have thought that, you know, that the hammer's coming down, that, that you don't have to fear the day of the Lord. Jesus said actually, instead of hunkering down or trying to duck and cover, what Jesus said is no, stand up and look up because your salvation has come near. That's what we saw a couple of weeks ago. And Last week, we explored that a little more. Well, who do you mean should stand up and look up because their salvation is coming? Is salvation really for all? And so uh, what we talked about last week is, yes, salvation really is for all. All does mean all. That that uh, salvation, that, that even people who we might not imagine um, can still be saved because of Jesus. So that's what we talked about last week. But the question we left with last week was this. Don't people's actions matter? Doesn't it matter how you live your life? If salvation is available to everybody, including the most unexpected people, doesn't it matter what you do with your life? And the answer is, is of course it matters, but probably not the way we think. Not in the sense that the way we live our life can disqualify us from receiving the grace of God. Not in that sense. And we see that in our, in our lesson where we hear about the corrupt, uh, tax collectors who come to Jesus. Now for us, a tax collector is a pain in the neck, but they're not Corrupt. We don't assume that people who work for the IRS or the Department of Revenue here in the state that they are corrupt because they've never shaken us down, right? They don't ever say, well, look, we can make this bill go away if you just pay me a bribe, which they would have in Jesus' time. That was very common. The way that system operated is that is that people could could had total arbitrary control over the, the tolls you paid. So when the corrupt tax collectors come to be baptized, everyone's kind of going, Really? Even them so they they can qualify there's nothing that keeps them from from being um, uh accepted by by God. What about what about soldiers? Now for us again soldiers are people we respect, you know, maybe we're not uh that's not part of our history but we look up to them I think largely as a as a country, but remember we're not occupied. These are the soldiers of an occupying enemy power. So when the occupying enemy power has their soldiers in town, you probably don't like them. And so when John says, yeah, there's salvation available for you too, that would be a surprise to people in um, John's audience. The other group we heard about, the crowds, the crowds say, what can we do? What should we do? And that doesn't, you know, what's wrong with a crowd? Well, the answer tells us what's wrong with them. John says, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. This is something that their faith would already have taught them to do. That from from very young childhood, they would have known that the Jewish faith... Uh, uh one of the hallmarks of it is taking care of the less fortunate that that is one of the one of the central tenets of the Jewish faith is that is that you take care of people who are less fortunate and the fact that John has to remind them of this tells me that they that John is aware that they have been deficient in this area so people who have been deficient in even the most um, uh foundational aspects of their faith plus people who who commit fraud and people who shake down um uh people by force, uh, that, that all of them have access to God's salvation. So the actions matter, but not in the sense that they disqualify people from God's salvation. So how do they matter? Well, there's two ways they matter. They matter first because our actions reveal who we are becoming. And just to make this very simple, let's suppose what your actions show is that you're not just Oppressing people, but you really kind of like it. You feel this is a real strength of yours. And you really, you know, the more you do it, the more you figure, you know, this is really who I am. Deep down inside me, I am an oppressor. Okay, well if that's really you, then you're not going to like the age to come. Because there's just no spot for you there. Because oppression will be gone. There will be no more oppression in the, in the world to come. So you may make it in, but what are you going to do with yourself? you may not like the world to come the other way that actions matter is our actions factor in our circumstances if if you know okay good i am i'm set i get i get ushered in the new age will come and i'll be i'll be just eased right in because of jesus and that's great but you know what monday's coming and i don't like what's waiting for me at school i don't like what's waiting for me at work i don't like honestly what's waiting for me in the bar i don't like what's waiting for me between now and the day that Jesus returns. My circumstances are a mess. My relationships are a mess. My addictions are a mess. My sexuality is a mess. My life is a mess. And it's not that I don't like the thought that someday things will be all better, but I'm just wondering what am I going to do in the meantime? What am I going to do between now and someday? So these are two ways that, that our actions matter. So our actions matter in that they are a factor. They're maybe not, depending on your your life, maybe they're not the only factor in your circumstances. But for a lot of us, we can say, yeah, well, I took that bad hand of cards, and then I picked the worst possible thing to do in those circumstances. So even when when we've been dealt a bad, a bad set of circumstances, uh, oftentimes we find that our choices, our actions make it worse. So our actions are a factor in our circumstances. So... There's two ways that we need to, to unpack what John is saying. The first one is in light of that first group of people, where their actions reveal who they are becoming. So John says to the group of people, he says, even now the acts of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So John says, John says that if you're becoming someone who is unfit for the world to come, What is God going to do with you? Is he going to make you just kind of suck it up and and enjoy heaven against your will? You know, are you going to, are you going to have to just endure eternity doing something, you know, you know, singing songs of praise or something when you deep down are not fit for heaven? John says, no, if you are a dead tree, if you are a dead tree, then the merciful thing that God will do is to cut you down and throw you in the fire. And I know there's all kinds of mischief in our heads about fire. You know, we hear about fire. We think Dante. We talked about Dante back in the fall. Um, Dante brought us so you know so many pleasant pictures of the afterworld, and and um, you know a lot of them are not even biblical. And the ones that are are typically this mishmash of all kinds of things from all over the Bible. So so what is John saying here? He's saying he's saying, what do you do with dead wood? You clear it out, right? It's it's a hazard. It's a hazard to keep dead wood around. We've seen the fires in California, the whole argument about whether you should rake your forest or not, you know, uh, you know, wh- we have the idea that there should be controlled burns from time to time because the forest, uh, is, is in danger when there is a bunch of dead, um, fuel scattered throughout the fire, throughout the forest. So of course it makes sense under certain circumstances to burn down the dead trees. It's not a mean thing. How many of you have ever put a log into a fireplace? And, and if, if that's you, did you do it to teach the log a lesson? (laughs) You know, you know, that's not the reason we do this. So, so we have this image of fire must be some kind of a punishment from God. Um, but, but in both of these metaphors, the, the one about the chaff too, again, that's getting rid of something that has to be gotten rid of. It's, it's, it's a hazard to leave this dry, spent, chaff laying around. So John says about that, he says, he says about the fire there, he says, it will be never ending fire. Now the word never ending here um, doesn't mean goes on forever. What it means is it can't be put out. If you've ever tried to start a fire, this is my skill level. Whenever I try to start a fire, right, I blow on it and I put the, the newspaper and the, you know, twigs and I can't start a fire to save my life because they always go out. And John is saying, John is saying, this is not that kind of fire that it will burn that it will destroy whatever is put on it. It is an unquenchable fire it cannot be put out he doesn 't mean it will go on forever, so it is a never ending fire it can 't go out but it 's not the fact that it goes on forever it 's the fact that it will eventually consume the thing that is put into it um, so that 's the the type of fire he 's talking about so um, I wouldn't think of it in terms of God wants to punish you, that, that it's more a question of you are not fit for the kingdom that is coming. So so as an act of mercy, he puts an end to you. So what does John say? Well, he says if that's you, you need to change. You need to change because your actions are revealing who you're becoming. And so he says you need to, to stop doing those things and, and and start working on becoming something different. He says to the soldiers and to the, the tax collectors, he says, stop robbing people. Stop shaking people down. You need to change that because it will corrupt you. It will turn you into something that is no longer fit for the kingdom of heaven. So John says that to that first group, the people who, who are, their, their, their actions are revealing who they're becoming. The other group is the people who have circumstances, circumstances in their life um, that, that because of the decisions they've made, or maybe the, the way they've compounded the circumstances that were handed to them, that they are concerned not about uh, what will happen when Jesus returns, they're concerned about tomorrow, they're concerned about later today, uh, because they're Those are, they, they have this immediate problem in their, in their future that they're dealing with more than something off in the distant future. So what does John say to them? He says, don't say to them we're safe for descendants, we're descendants of Abraham. And the reason they would have said that is because from the time they were very small, they would have heard the stories over and over again about how God had blessed Abraham. That, that they knew that, that Abraham was a friend of God that God had this special place in his heart for Abraham, and they would say, we're kind of like Abraham too, right? We're related to him, we're just like Abraham. And John is saying to them, you're related to him, but you're not like him, because Abraham trusted God. The central thing that they would have known from the time they were growing up, what made Abraham uh, capable of God becoming his friend, is that Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham trusted God, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness because of his faith, because he trusted God. The thing that made Abraham suitable for God to work with, for God to bless in so many different ways, is that he trusted God. So he tells them, if your circumstances are bad, if you're thinking, well, God always comes through, he came through for Abraham after all, he'll fix this somehow, what John says is, yes, he will. And the way that that happens is you trust God. How do you trust God? They say, well, what, what, what are we supposed to do to trust God? And what's amazing about the lesson that he gives them, these instructions, is they are baby steps. These are not high hurdles. He doesn't say go on a pilgrimage and live in a cave at the top of a mountain for three years. He doesn't say, you know, crawl a hundred miles on your, on your knees. He doesn't say do, you know, anything that we might think, you know, if you're really in a bad circumstance, you have to do something, something amazing. He says, no, I want you, to do some baby steps, some baby steps of faith. So what does he tell them to do? He tells the soldiers, be content with your pay. Quit shaking people down. He tells the tax collectors, don't collect any more than is legally authorized. He doesn't say quit your job. He doesn't say you're participating in a corrupt enterprise. You just have to get clear of it. You have to, you have to walk away. He doesn't even say that. He just says use your daily life as a, as an arena in which to practice your faith. To say, look, my life will continue even if I don't shake this person down. My life will go on even if I don't rob this poor fellow who's trying to trying to make a living. Right? He says, use, use the circumstances of your life, even if they're not great circumstances, use those circumstances as an opportunity to trust God. And he tells that to the people in the crowd who ask about what should we do. And, and uh, the way that we hear it, he says, he says, if you've got one shirt, um, if you've got two shirts, give it to somebody who has none. He doesn't say, if you've got one shirt, give that to the person who has none. He says, if you've got enough. If you've got enough that you can spare something, then give it to somebody else. And I have to tell you, by the way, yesterday I was so convicted by this passage, I went to my closet and I found some shirts that I can give away. Because, because you know, it's not like that's been my practice over the past ten years. It's like I never have more shirts than I need. No, I accumulate stuff that I don't need. And so I was convicted as I read this that, that that's something that, that unless you take the uh, make an effort, won't happen. So he tells them, do this. But he doesn't make it something impossible. He doesn't say, give your last penny to the poor. He says, if you've got enough to spare, give something to people who don't. So these are very, very modest things that he asked them to do. And they're, they're things that you can do no matter what the circumstances of your life are. You don't have to move to Jerusalem and, you know, become a hermit or anything like that. These are, these are everyday acts of trusting God. He says, that's the way you act like Abraham's children. How do you act like Abraham's children? By trusting God. And when you do, God will bless you the way that He blessed Abraham. So I would say, as we read the passage, as we read what John has to say, this is actually good news. John tells the people who are becoming corrupted by the world, this is something you need to change because it's going to, it's going to end in a place where you're no good for the world that is coming. And he tells the people who aren't worried about the the world to come, they know they're going to get there and that'll be great, but in the meantime, they've got Thursday to worry about. He tells them, why don't you treat Thursday as an opportunity to trust God? Because God blesses the people who trust him. So this is good news. This is good news all by itself. But then we get to the really, really, really good news. Because what John says is, and by the way, this is just a down payment on the grace that's about to be revealed. He says, the one who's coming after me is so much greater than me, I could not take off his sandals. I am not worthy to take off his sandals. He is that much greater than me. And the baptism he's got, let me tell you, all I can do, all I can do is give you a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins, right? You change the way you think about God, you repent, and now your sins are forgiven, right? God won't hold that grudge against you, okay? God won't hold a grudge against you. He says, that's all I've got. That's all I've got. But the one who's coming after me, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. What does that ever mean, the Holy Spirit and fire? What What on earth is John talking about? Well, it's something awesome. The Holy Spirit and fire. See, we just heard fire is something that consumes what is bad. That is exactly what he's talking about. He says he will baptize us in a consuming fire, a fire that that consumes everything that is wrong with us, a fire that that purifies and refines us, a refiner's fire. He will baptize us in that kind of fire, and he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Paul says about this greater one, the one who's offering a better baptism, uh, John says he'll baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. Paul says this, he says that we die in our baptism, that, that our baptism commemorates the fact that we are dead in Christ. My old self, Paul writes, has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is the Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God. Paul says that when we are baptized, what we are indicating is our confidence that we have died in Christ and that in Christ we have risen to new life and we live our lives or I should say, Christ lives in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? It means sin has lost its power. Sin doesn't know your street address anymore because you've died in Christ. And sin sin may kind of give a general message to the world. It's like, you know, uh, uh, succumb to my temptation. But it no longer has the authority over your life. Sin no longer rules your life. So you have the opportunity to overcome sin. And not only that, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, you have the power to overcome sin. You can be a different person. If you are finding yourself corrupted, um, if you are worried about your circumstances, it's not simply a matter of trusting God that because we are baptized into Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us and we can live in His power. Jesus gives this parable talking about this kind of life because I think a lot of us say, well, I don't remember suddenly having that experience. Jesus says this, he says, The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it all happens. He says, this will sneak up on you. One day you'll do something and you'll realize the old self would not have done that. He says, that's what it's like. It will grow inside you until you no longer recognize who you used to be. That's how subtle it is. The kingdom of God is like a seed growing in secret. He says the earth produces the crops on its own. First, a leaf, a leaf, a blade pushes through. Then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. Paul, Paul, the apostle Paul, puts it a different way. He says the Holy Spirit puts this kind of produces this kind of food in our life: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. He says these are the things that the Holy Spirit produces in us because the the baptism that the great one, the the, the greater one, the mighty one who follows john has these are the things that we can expect because this is the baptism that jesus taught his teach to give his disciples this is what this is what we are baptized into when we become christians so if your concern is your corruption that that you know that the world has left its mark on you that you have not escaped unscathed That because of that job or because of that relationship, you know that, that you're not who you need to be. And you say, if I continue down that path, I will not be fit for heaven. The baptism that John offers is good, but the baptism that Jesus offers is even better because it will purify everything that is wrong. God is waiting to jump into your life and begin putting things to right. We heard about the, the son of righteousness who has risen with healing in his wings. God longs to get involved in your life and begin healing the parts of you that are broken and hurting. But this is also a call to the church because our circumstances are sometimes things that that we have no control over, that, that um, I had control a month ago, or six months ago, or five years ago, but now the bill has come due. And no matter how good the, the, the church that we belong to, the body of Christ that we are baptized into, no matter how good it is, it can't prevent all the things that are going to happen. It's not going to rescue every marriage. It's not going to break every addiction. It's not going to keep people from being depressed, and it certainly is not going to keep people from dying. But what... The church, what the body of Christ, the thing into which we are baptized, can do is it can ensure that nobody goes through that alone. That you don't ever have to be in an emergency room by yourself. You don't ever have to be in a courtroom. You don't ever have to be in a prison by yourself. No matter what your circumstances are, the church is joined to you because we are all part of Christ and you no longer have to be alone in the world. So whatever your circumstances are, they may get better. We administer a benevolence fund, and sometimes there's things money can fix. But even if this is something, the thing that you're facing is not something money can fix, it is something that you you will have a companion with along the way. So what do we do? Well, if John is like a Band-Aid that stops the bleeding, Jesus is like aggressive surgery that roots out the cause and fixes it. But the therapy is the same either way. We trust God. We do baby steps. We treat the, our lives, we treat the the venue in which we live our lives as an opportunity to trust God. And I will just put in a plea. If you have not been baptized, please do speak to me, because I would love to tell you more about what it means to be baptized and how you could become part of the family of God by becoming part of Christ, becoming a member of Christ, Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the baptism of John, the baptism of forgiveness, that you don't hold grudges. And the only way that our actions matter are that they, they will make us unhappy in the short term or they will corrupt us so badly that we would not enjoy the world that is coming. So we thank you just for that good news that you do not hold a grudge. But more than that, Lord, we thank you that John's baptism was not the final word that there is a better baptism, a baptism of fire and Holy Spirit, a baptism that will change us from the inside out, and that you will begin living in us and helping us to live by your power. We, we, we praise you, Lord, for this good news. And, Lord, as we look ahead to Christmas and we look ahead to your coming, um, we ask you, Lord, to help us to lean into this, to, to use the everyday parts of our life as a venue, as an arena in which we can put our faith in you into practice. We pray it all through Christ our Lord. Amen.